Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online service. I hope you had an awesome Christmas and a happy new year. Let me ask you, have you, have you cleaned up from Christmas yet? I know here you can see we have our Christmas decorations still up. And if I'm honest, I still have my Christmas decorations still up. And maybe you have your Christmas decorations up as well. Why do we do that? We do that because we love Christmas. Christmas is a wonderful time of year. Christmas is an awesome time of year. And we all kind of want to hold on to some good times, especially during, well, the year that we've had. And so we keep Christmas up. And Christmas is great. It it introduces us to the baby Jesus. This is God's gift to humanity. What better gift could God give us than giving us his son? We love Christmas. But Christmas is just the beginning of the story. It's not the climax of the story. It's not the best part of the story. It's not the hero moment. It's just really the first chapter. See, what happens is Jesus, who had a very dramatic birth, is going to match that with an even more dramatic death. And the birth and the death of Jesus Christ have been the most significant events in human history. I mean, we celebrate them every year. They mark our calendar, and even our calendar is divided by the birth of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why is that? What makes Jesus so unique? What makes Jesus somebody who can divide history? Why would Jesus do this? Why why is it that a man who had three years of ministry, who was poor, who grew up in a very obscure village, has had such a significant impact on human history. What makes him so unique? Well, that's what we're going to try to tackle in this series. We're going to take a four-part series to look at who is Jesus, what makes him unique, and specifically, we're going to look at what does Jesus say about himself. Now, before we get into our passage today, I want to ask you this question. What do you do when somebody makes an outrageous claim? I mean, outrageous, not, not telling a story of they caught a fish this big when it was really this big. I'm not talking about stretching the truth. I'm not talking about hyperbole or exaggeration. What is your response when somebody makes an outrageous claim? Let me give you an example. What if one of your friends on Facebook posted, I am the son of God, and I am the only hope for humanity? To find the life it was designed to have. What would your response be? You'd probably unfriend them, right? Or or at least not follow them. Or maybe just delete all your social media to keep yourself away from them. What would be your response to that kind of outlandish, outrageous, shocking, unexpected claim? I asked you that question because what I want you to do is I really want you to try to place yourself at the time of Jesus' first century hearers. Because Jesus in our passage today is going to make an outrageous claim. I mean, just an outrageous claim. And I really want you to try to think, how would you respond if you heard what Jesus is about to say in our passage? So let's go to John chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 12. And here's what I think we're going to find. We're going to find that Jesus Christ is outrageously honest. He is outrageously honest. Honest. In fact, that's the big idea for this morning. So if you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. Jesus is outrageously honest. Jesus is outrageously honest. Now, what do I mean by that? 
outrageously. Why do I use that word? Because what Jesus is going to say is incredibly shocking. It's surprising. It is completely unexpected. And yet Jesus makes this claim. But it's also honest. It's honest. It's true. It's accurate. It is correct. Jesus is outrageously honest. Let me show you. First, Jesus' outrageous claim. John chapter 8, verse 12 says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, why is that outrageous? Why is that so astounding? Why is that so shocking? Why is it so surprising and unexpected? Well, we can tell the words there are pretty significant. Jesus is saying that he is the light of life. He is saying that that if you follow him, you won't walk in darkness. But really to unpack, I think, the true significance of what's going on in this passage, we need to see where and when Jesus made this statement. If you jump down to verse 20, We'll see where Jesus made this statement. Verse 20 in John chapter 8 says this. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Where is Jesus? He's in the treasury. The treasury of the temple. Now why is that significant? Why is it significant that Jesus would make this statement, I am the light of the world as he is in the treasury of the temple. Well, here's why it's significant. See, the treasury of the temple was kind of this, this outer courtyard. It was a pretty big courtyard. And in this courtyard, there were these four huge towers. I mean, these things were massive. And at the top of these towers were these golden lampstands. And these golden lampstands had four bowls on them. And these giant towers had these ladders. I mean, these things were incredibly huge. I mean, just enormous. When I looked at them and studied them, I mean... I wouldn't say I'm afraid of heights, but, but I'm afraid of an unreal kind of and, and, and super high heights or things that look unsafe. And I looked at these ladders on these towers and I thought to myself, there's no way I would climb that kind of ladder. And yet these ladders would lead up to the top of these towers, these towers that had these lampstands. And when they would light these lampstands, it not only would fill the courtyard with light, it would flood the entire city of Jerusalem. I mean, you would see it from all around. So Jesus delivers the statement, I am the light of the world. He's saying this, and as he's saying this to, to I don't know how big the crowd is, but probably pretty big, he's saying this as he's staring at kind of these four towers, or he's surrounded by these four towers, these golden lampstands on top of these towers. Now, the wind is also important. It's not just the where, but the, the when is important. When is Jesus saying these statements? He's saying these statements when they're actually using these towers or just had used these towers. Jesus is speaking during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. See, during the Feast of Tabernacles, it was really entertaining kind of how these towers were used. What they would do is they would take four young uh, boys from the group of uh, priests that were kind of in training. Uh, think of them as like the interns, right? The interns always get the bad job. Get coffee, wash the boss's car, climb a dangerously tall ladder that you could potentially 
fall off of, right? So they would send the priestly interns up these ladders with these big jars of oil, and they would pour the oil in these four bowls, and they would light these things on fire. And these, the, the, the fires would just give light to the entire city. And for seven days, they had this feast and this celebration. And for seven days, these, these lampstands would be lit. And there'd be crowds in the courtyard. They'd be singing. And they would be dancing. And the uh, other priests would be playing music. And they would not only would they sing and dance, but there's also a, a, a level of entertainment that they would dance with, with fire torches. I actually found one ancient document that said a rabbi was known to have danced with eight live torches, and he didn't drop one. So, I mean, this sounds like a pretty awesome party. Now, we don't know where we are in the midst of this, probably at the end of this festival. So all the crowd knows what's going on. They, they know the lampstands that have already been lit. They know the big party that has happened. Now, behind this feast is incredibly important. Because why do they do all this dancing? Why are they dancing with, with torches in hand, right? Why are they doing all this singing and why are they filling the city with light? It's because they're trying to remember something. They're trying to remember a great movement of God. A great movement of God in the Old Testament. You see, God's big action, I would say, in the Old Testament was when he delivered the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery. It's referred to in the Bible as the Exodus. It's when God brought his people out of Egyptian slavery and he brought them to the promised land. But these things weren't right next to each other. It's not like he just freed them and then plopped them in the land. They got a moving truck, got all their stuff, and everything was fine, easy transition. No. There's a middle space there called the wilderness wandering. And God miraculously provided for his people as they're on this long trek from from Egypt to Canaan. And as they're on this long trip, God shows up to them. He provides them manna. He provides them water from a rock. And he leads them. And he leads them. He leads them at night by a pillar of fire. A, a, A pillar of light. A tower of light. God moves and at times would even protect his people by, by having that fire kind of lash out at their, their enemies. So what is Jesus saying here? Now that we have that background, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Think about that now. Now, as you know, this celebration that has just probably ended, a celebration about God leading his people with a pillar of light, a pillar of fire by night, bringing them into the abundant life of the promised land, freeing them from Egyptian slavery, the oppressed life to the abundant life. And he's led them through. Now, Jesus sees all this celebration, celebrating the great work of God. And he comes in and says, no, I am the light of the world. And you don't want to walk in darkness. You don't want to walk at night in the wilderness. You want to get to the promised land. You want to get to life. And I am the one who will give you this life. I am the light of the world. Jesus is basically putting himself on an equal plane with God the Father. As God led them in the wilderness. And they saw that pillar of fire. It was a symbolic presence of God. And they saw 
that fire and thought, this is God leading us. And Jesus saying, yeah, that's me. I'm that. And I will do a greater work. A greater work than you being freed from your Egyptian chains. I'm going to free you from the chains of sin. I'm going to free you from that kind of slavery. I'm going to liberate you and bring you not just to a land, but I'm going to bring you to live under the blessed reign and rule of God in his new kingdom. Sounds like a very outrageous statement, right? Jesus is basically saying, I am God and I am the hope of humanity. And the greatest work you're celebrating now, I will do a greater work. The most dramatic act of God that really defined his people, I'm going to do something more than that. That will look like a shadow of what I am going to do. That's outrageous. That's shocking. That's it's, it's unexpected. Look at the Pharisees' response. Now think again of your response. And if you interacted with somebody who said that they were the son of God and the only hope of humanity and the one who would bring ultimate deliverance, what would be your response? Maybe your response would be like this of the Pharisees. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What are they saying? Jesus, this is this outlandish. Jesus, you sound arrogant. You sound narcissistic. You're just, you're just self-promoting. You're, you're a self-aggrandizing imposter. Like, you just talk a lot of game. How, how can you possibly validate this? How, how could you possibly give us any proof to, to this claim? What evidence could you get to convince us that what you're saying is true? How can we in any way believe what you're saying? And they use kind of a a, a courtroom logic on Jesus. They say, wait a second, Jesus. I mean, you're, you're bringing this outrageous claim before the court, if you will. Well, you better have more than just your witness. You better have a, a, a group of witnesses. You gotta, you gotta do more than just talk yourself. Now look at Jesus' response. I think it's interesting. Look what Jesus says, verse 14. And Jesus answered, even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. What does Jesus say? His response? He makes this outrageous claim. They believe it's outrageous. They believe it's unfounded. They believe it's baseless. And what does Jesus say? Well, guys, I'm just being honest. Right? Jesus' defense is what? I'm not self-promoting. I'm self-aware. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. You don't know where I'm from. You don't know where I'm going. Jesus says, I'm just being honest. This is just the truth. I'm just being, well, accurate. Now, that may feel a little strange. Is that... Is that fair to say if someone just says, well, I'm just being who I am. Well, God has spoken and that is that. Now, we'll see that Jesus is going to give more information. right? If somebody, again, made that outrageous claim to you, I'm the son of God, the only hope of humanity. And you were to say, well, 
can you give me a little more than that? Can you, can, you, can you give me some evidence to why I should believe that? And if they were just to say, well, well, I know who I am, and God has spoken to me, and that is that. Well, that's not really helpful, right? I mean, one, how could they prove that? And the other is, well, how could you disprove that? All right, it's not very helpful. It doesn't really advance the argument there. Now, Jesus is going to give evidence. What Jesus is saying here is, hey, my testimony is still important. We'll see. Jesus will call forth a witness to validate the truthfulness of his claims. He'll do that. But what Jesus is saying here is, hey, my, my testimony may not be enough, but my testimony is important. I think this is important for us to just pause and consider. Because Jesus' testimony about himself is incredibly important. I, I mean, think about it. If Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, but was made the Son of God by his first century followers after his death, well, now we're talking about a whole new understanding of the Christian religion. If Jesus was just built up by myth and storytelling hundreds of years later, and he was a man, but then he came, became a God because of the stories told by his earliest followers, then oh, okay. Now, now it's different. Now we have Jesus becoming God. You see, what Jesus is saying here, the outrageous claims concerning Jesus weren't made about him. They were made first by him, then about him. Jesus is the one who considered himself the son of God. Jesus is the one who made the statement, I am the light of the world. If anyone follow me, follows me, he will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the one who has made these outrageous claims. And we see this when we examine history. Is Jesus not only made these claims, but it was the early testimony of his first century followers that Jesus claimed to be God. It didn't show up later, hundreds of years later, or even decades later. We see the confession of the church of Jesus' deity, of him being divine. We see that testimony early, very early, within years of Jesus' resurrection. It's, it's, It's just not historically accurate to try to create a picture in which Jesus' followers made him to be God. But rather, Jesus claimed to be God, and it was the early testimony of his followers that he was such. Jesus is the author of these outrageous claims. Now, Jesus is going to give evidence to these claims. But before he does that, he wants to make a point to them. And he'll do this twice in our passage. And here's what I think Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to kind of give them what they want. Meaning, they're asking for a witness, and Jesus will bring forth witnesses. He says, okay, fine. I know my claims are outrageous, but I'm being honest, so let me give you some evidence. He'll do that. He will. But before he does that, he has to make another point. And I think the point he's making is this. Hey, guys, it really doesn't come down to the amount of evidence. The problem is not that there's a lack of evidence or or I just don't have enough credible witnesses. No. The problem is you're not judging the evidence fairly. You're not listening to the witnesses. Right? Look at verse 15. Jesus makes this point before he calls his first witness. Verse 15. He says, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. 
For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. What is Jesus saying there? Now, you may caught that, caught those, a couple of words there where it says, Jesus says, I judge no one. You may think, well, wait a second. But Jesus is, is spoken in other passages of judging. What is Jesus saying? Well, in the context, what Jesus is saying is, I don't judge like you. Right? First, he said, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. What Jesus is saying here, I don't judge like you. I don't judge according to the flesh. We see this conflict all the time throughout the Gospels. That Jesus just has another criteria. He has another way of judging people than the religious leaders do. That they're obsessed with outward appearance. And they're obsessed with public opinion. But Jesus can see accurately what's going on in somebody's heart. So Jesus is saying, I don't judge like you guys. See, here's the real problem. The problem is not that there's not enough evidence or I don't have enough credible witnesses. That's not the problem. The problem is, is inside you. You just don't judge correctly. And then Jesus will say, but let me give you a witness. Let me give you a witness. Let me call forth some testimony to validate my outrageous claim. Look what Jesus says. In verse 17, he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. What is Jesus saying here? Okay, guys, I'll play by the rules. Right? In your law it says this, and, 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 and I agree that maybe my testimony is important, but not enough. Okay, let me call forth a witness. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me, bears witness about me. So what does he call? Well, I give witness to myself, and the Father gives witness to myself. Now that at first glance, again, is going to seem, well, I don't know, maybe not helpful. Okay, Jesus, so the Father bears witness about you. Well, what does that mean? Again, is this that just thing? Well, well, I know who I am. God spoke to me, and that is that. Is that what Jesus is saying there? Is that Jesus' style of argument here? Is that how he's really going to try to convince them of the truthfulness of his claims? I think what we have to do is we have to realize that this conversation is a part of a larger conversation that Jesus has had with the religious leaders. This is the first time Jesus has called forth witnesses to validate his claims. Let me show you this. Go to John chapter 5, and I think this will help us kind of Understand what Jesus is saying when he calls basically just one witness in John chapter 8. He just calls the Father. He says, the Father is my witness. Now, what does that mean, though? I think in order to understand what that means in John chapter 8, we have to remember the conversation that Jesus had, very much like the one he had in 8, the conversation he had in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, Jesus calls forth many witnesses. Look at this. John chapter 5, we start in verse Well, verse 31, notice this. It says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Again, what is Jesus saying here? Hey, my testimony about myself is important, but it's, well, it's not enough. Right? If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus kind of accepts this idea that I need to say more than just what I say about myself. Now, what I say about myself is important. But there needs to be more to validate that, to back that up. I need to call forth some more witnesses. 
Well, look at verse 39. One of the witnesses that he calls is Scripture. He speaks to the religious leaders and he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He's saying the Old Testament Scriptures, the ones that you study meticulously, they bear witness about me. They've been preparing you for me. You've been looking for me. Here I am, right here. I'm the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the one that was promised long ago. I am here. There are over 300, 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Messiah, and Jesus Christ of Nazareth fulfilled every single one. Jesus is saying, look, here's the testimony. You're looking for a witness? The Old Testament scriptures have been pointing to this day. They've been pointing to me. And here I am. I fit the resume. All the expectations are satisfied in me. Over 300 prophecies. And I have fulfilled each one of them. Jesus says there are also other religious leaders. Influential at the time. Who point to me? Look at verse 33. It says, you sent to John, this is John the Baptist, and he bore witness about me. John the Baptist was the one who, when he saw Jesus, said he is the chosen one of God. He also said about Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus said, not only is it Scripture who's been... you who's kind of set up the picture of what you should expect the Messiah to be. I fulfilled 300 prophecies, but also a very influential prophet at the time in the first century, John the Baptist, who you had some interest in, he told you about me. Jesus calls forth another witness. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying the ministry I am doing, my teaching, my miracles, this bear witness, these are my witnesses. This is the evidence I give to the courtroom to make their decision. Now just unpack that for a moment. The ministry that Jesus did, this would include his teaching. Well, just think about the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus, which, of course, are in the Bible. How influential have those teachings been? The Bible, this book right here, that contains the teachings of Jesus Christ, is the best-selling book in all of human history By far. It's the most translated book. It's the book most quoted. It's even the book most stolen. I was surprised to learn that this week. I guess they forgot, and I guess they very well needed that commandment, thou shalt not steal. But we could easily say that Jesus is the most influential thinker of all time. By far. By far. Nobody is quoted more than him. 
I mean, if we really want to peel back, we can look at that really the foundation of Western civilization is built on the teachings of Scripture and specifically the teachings of Jesus Christ. No one has had more influence than Jesus. Doesn't this validate, just, just, just practically speaking, doesn't this really validate as a great witness to the truthfulness of Jesus' claims that his teachings are that incredibly influential? They must work. Right? His prescriptions and instructions and his commands, they must, they must work. They must lead to human flourishing because people keep doing them and keep spreading them. Now, the ministry of Jesus includes more than his teaching. It includes his miracles. We have over 30 recorded miracles in the scriptures. Jesus heals people who are blind. Jesus even raises the dead. I mean, if you wanted some validation that somebody is from God, miracles of that magnitude would do a great service to prove that point. So in John chapter 8, when we're told that the Father bears witness, that he is the witness that Jesus is calling forth, I think we have to take that in light of everything that was said in John chapter 5. That all those witnesses are like the Father witnessing. I mean, the Father is the one who inspired the Scriptures. Right? God the Father is the one who inspired the Old Testament prophets to write, who inspired Moses to write. He's the author of those Scriptures. So when the Scriptures testify to Jesus, prophesy about Jesus' coming, that's really the Father validating the Son. John the Baptist, a prophet, a prophet whose job was to speak as instructed by God. When John testifies to Jesus... That's God the Father testifying through John the Baptist. When Jesus performs miracles, when he gives forth teaching that shows itself to be profitable and beneficial, that validates that his teaching is from God. When Jesus performs miracles, clearly that shows that he's connected to God. Jesus is bringing forth a mountain of evidence saying, here you go, guys. Yes, I know my claims are outrageous, but I'm just being honest. I am the light of the world. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the hope of humanity. Only through me will you find what you're looking for. Now what Jesus is going to do again, after he kind of calls forth the Father's witness, which I think means all of those things there, Jesus will kind of go back and say, hey guys, the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is not there are no credible witnesses. Again, there's a problem in you. He said in verse 15 that they didn't judge correctly. Now Jesus will go after something even more precious to them than their judgment, their ability to discern. He goes after their religion. Look what he says in verse 19. Sorry, they started off. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Notice the order there. Jesus says, you don't know me, therefore you don't know my father. Now in verse 42 of chapter 8, he reverses that order. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. 
For I came from God and I am here. Notice the kind of steps those are in. He says, first, well, you don't know me. That's why you don't know the Father. And then in verse 41, kind of in the same breath here, or the same kind of interaction with them, he says, well, if you really love the Father, you would love me. What is Jesus saying? There's a connection here. You, you can't separate Father and Son. You can't separate God the Father and God the Son. You cannot separate us. You can't love the Father, not love the Son, and love the Son and not love the Father. It doesn't work like that. So what he's telling them, here's the reason why you don't believe is because you don't really love God. Your religion is hollow. It's false. It's vanity. It's not true. Think again. Go back to that friend, that friend who makes that outrageous claim on Facebook, right? They say that they're the son of God and the hope of humanity. I mean, that's really, really hard to believe. But say a friend were to make a, a different outrageous claim. Now, the, the more you know that friend, the more you trust that friend, the more you love that friend, the more likely you are to believe whatever story they tell you, even if it's outrageous. If somebody is at kind of an arm's distance to you relationally, and they make an outrageous claim, you just kind of blow them off. You'd say, no, 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 that's, that's not accurate. But when somebody really close to you, who you love and who you trust, when they tell a story that sounds outrageous, they make a claim that sounds far-fetched, you're more likely to believe them. I think this is what Jesus is indicating here. He says, you know, the reason you can't handle my outrageous honesty is because you don't really love the Father. If you love the Father, you would listen to him give testimony about me. You would listen to him when he validates me. Yes, Jesus makes outrageous and honest claims, but the Father has validated them, and they can't hear the Father's voice because they don't love him. They don't love him. And the Father has validated Jesus Christ. He validated Jesus Christ before he was ever born. He gave witness to Jesus Christ before he was ever born. 300 prophecies. The Old Testament. Not only the prophecies, but all the images, all the expectation. There's so much just, just littered throughout the Old Testament that is waiting for a hero. And all of that was God's witness to the coming Christ. Even during Jesus' ministry, even during Jesus' life on earth, God was validating it. God was bearing witness to it through, through, through his teaching, through his miracles, through ultimately his resurrection. Even after his resurrection, after his ascension, God validates again the testimony of Jesus Christ by building his church. His church who would hold on to the outrageous claims of Jesus, even though they would face death and suffering for it. Even though they would be persecuted for it. Even though there was no financial advantage to hold to the claims of Jesus. Even though there was no social advantage to hold the claims of Jesus. Even though there was no safe advantage to holding the claims of Jesus. Yet God would validate that witness and martyrdom would never shrink the church but only grow the church. God has continued to validate and give witness to Jesus Christ before, during, and after his life here on earth. And that is why... 
a poor Jewish rabbi with three years of ministry who grew up in an obscure village is more well-known than the Roman emperor of his day. I mean, just think about that. The most powerful man in the first century world. Do you know who the Roman emperor was in the first century? No. Maybe some of you do. Maybe you're Googling it right now. But you know the name of Jesus Christ. How topsy-turvy is that? I mean, how just upside down is that? We have a man with three years of ministry who has no sense of moderate wealth, no political power, who's not a king, a conqueror. And yet his itinerant ministry has the most significant impact in human history. And his movement couldn't be slowed even though it was persecuted for the first couple hundred years that it started. How is that possible? It's possible because the Father was bearing witness to it. He was validating the claims of Jesus, even though they were outrageous, big, shocking. They were honest. They were true. And they were accurate. Jesus is outrageously honest. And God validates his claims. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you and I this week? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is outrageously honest. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, I think that means we cannot downplay Jesus. We cannot downplay Jesus. We cannot temper his outrageous claims. When we are sharing Jesus with our friends and family members, we cannot speak about him as if he's just our life coach. We must speak about him as if he is the son of God who demands devotion and worship. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times, if I'm honest, that I'm tempted to censor Jesus, to, to mute Jesus. Now I know, you're thinking, what? I don't know, I know that sounds strange. But there are, there are times I'm tempted to censor Jesus, to mute Jesus, because he makes some outrageous claims. I, I feel like this sometimes. That Jesus at times feels like that, that friend from college who, who lives out of town, who you invite to different parties just out of courtesy, right? But who never shows up. And then one day he shows up unexpectedly. And he's there and, and you're kind of sitting uh, on the porch in the backyard and you're watching as, as he's starting to talk to some of your friends. You can't help but wonder is, what on earth is that guy saying to my friends? There are times that honestly Jesus feels like that. Now look at me, it's easy, it's so easy to share Jesus' ethical teachings of treat others as you want to be treated. That's easy conversation. Or, or Jesus' teaching to pray for those who persecute you. That's an easy one too. But then Jesus speaks about 
eternal damnation. Jesus speaks about the folly of riches. Jesus speaks about the the danger of lust. Jesus speaks about the sacrifice of true devotion. Those aren't easy conversations. Those are hard conversations. We cannot downplay Jesus. We cannot mute him. We cannot censor him. Jesus makes outrageous claims, but they're honest, they're true, and they're accurate. And I believe in the claims of Jesus 100%. But I know that there are times that Jesus brings up very hard things, things that are not easy to talk about. They're true and they're accurate, but they're difficult. And as followers of Jesus Christ, I would recommend to you what I have found to be most helpful is when you're in that kind of situation, just let Jesus speak. Just let Jesus speak. Just let the word of God be the word of God. Let Jesus, Jesus shoulder the burden of that conversation. When you find yourself in a position where you have friends or family members who, who maybe want to go uh, watch a movie or uh, are currently watching a TV show or something like that that is just not what you feel like you should be, you should be watching. Just let, let Jesus, let Jesus shoulder the burden of that conversation and just say, hey guys, it, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe it's important to keep my mind pure. Jesus says if we look at a woman with lust, it's like we've committed adultery in our heart, and, and, and I don't, I don't want to do that, so I, I'm just not going to partake in this. Don't feel like you have to have those conversations on your own. D- don't feel like you have to just shoulder that burden on your own. Jesus is with you there. So use the scriptures. Let Jesus speak. He's the one who made these outrageous and honest claims. If you believe them, just let him Speak, let him shoulder that burden. I think that is the most beneficial strategy as we're dealing with some of these harder conversations when the discussion about hell and damnation come up. When talking about where does a certain person's eternal destiny lie or, 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 or where certain religions will lead or how Christianity does say that there is one way, and then the, the only way is through Jesus Christ. Just let Jesus speak. Say, hey, I, I love people of all different religions. I, I love people who, who have different views than I do. But I also know the clear truth that Jesus teaches, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him. He said that in John 14. Let Jesus speak. Let him shoulder the burden of those claims. Believe them, share them, but, but give them the scriptures to support that. I think that's the best strategy to do. I think you'll find that Jesus and the Spirit can be incredibly persuasive and more persuasive than you and I. Share the scriptures. Let Jesus speak. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you're looking into Jesus and you're curious about Jesus. What does this passage mean for you this week? 
Again, Jesus is outrageously honest. I think it means this for you, and my encouragement to you is this. Don't buy a discount Jesus. Don't buy a discount Jesus. Look, look, uh, there's all these after Christmas and, and New Year's sales, right? There's all these discounts everywhere. I know I'm looking for one. I'm looking for a discount on a mattress. I think I've had the same mattress for the 15 years that I've been married, right? And so we're finally looking for a new one. We're waiting on that discount. Whatever you do, take advantage of those. But whatever you do, don't buy a discount Jesus. See, as you're looking into Christianity, as you're looking into the scriptures, or you're looking into Jesus, you're going to find this. And I'm sad, but this, I'm sad about it, but it's true. You're going to find different portrayals of Jesus. You are. And you're going to find people that are going to try to sell you a Jesus that fits nice and comfortably into your life. Nice and comfortable like that mattress I'm looking for. You're going to find people who are going to sell you a Jesus who is just really convenient. A Jesus maybe who will give you a little advice. A Jesus who will give you a little inspiration. And maybe Jesus who will give you a little favor now and then. But not a Jesus who will demand much of you. Don't buy that Jesus. Don't buy a discount Jesus. I would rather you look into the scriptures and truly see what Jesus calls you to. And you reject him than for you to follow a false portrayal of Jesus. I'd rather you search the scriptures, come to a true awareness of what Jesus is calling you to, and reject him, than follow a false portrayal of Jesus. I encourage you, over the next three weeks, as we search through John chapter 8, we're going to get to some of the hardest teachings of Jesus. We're going to get into what Jesus says about himself and what he can do for you. And these are hard teachings. These are difficult teachings. But I think this will give you a true portrayal of who Jesus is. And so my encouragement to you is this. Stick with us. Stick with us over the next three weeks. Stick with us before you push away Jesus. Maybe you felt that during this message, if this is the Jesus they push here, I don't want that Jesus. All I'm asking you to do is this. Stick with us for three more weeks. Watch how we unpack very honestly the scriptures and see who Jesus is from this book. Before you want to push him away or before you decide to go somewhere else, look into this Jesus. See who he really is. See what he says about himself. And I believe you will find that he is the Savior you're looking for. He is the hope you're looking for. He is the peace that you're looking for. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you that you guide us and you direct us. And Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us as followers of Jesus Christ. To not try to downplay the teachings of Jesus. To not simply share this, the sweet teachings of Jesus. But also share the hard ones. The challenging ones. The ones that stretch us. Because they are what's best for us. 
Oh, and Father, I pray for those that don't yet know you, who wouldn't call you Father. I pray, Father, that you would be with them, that you would guide them. Father, that you would draw them to yourself. And Father, I pray that you'd continue to bring them back. Keep them viewing over the next three weeks to really dive into who your son is. Yes, the claims are outrageous. But they're also honest. And they're incredibly satisfying. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.